This is The Crown in Canada, presented by Nathan Tidridge and Leaking Ambiance Studio in association with the Ontario Historical Society. Episode 1, Part 2, A Conversation at the Chapel Royal. Hello, in part one of this episode, we explored the long history of the Crown being incorporated into long-established protocols of treaty-making by Indigenous nations. It was treaties that created the necessary diplomatic space in which very different civilizations could communicate and negotiate complex relationships despite radically different worldviews. However, the 21st century Canada is a settler state. It's a product of colonialism, all aspects, its government, its education system, capitalism, urban-rural planning, and so on. Our contemporary concept of democracy has seen the Canadian state force its way onto and over treaty and other Crown Indigenous relationships that were meant to guide the various civilizations inhabiting these lands. Today, I'm at the Chapel Royal at Massey College. This place was created by Queen Elizabeth II in 2017 to honour the 1764 Treaty of Niagara and the extension of the Silver Covenant chain into these lands, part of one of the oldest Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships on the continent. Two years after the chapel's creation, the Honourable Elizabeth Dowdswell, Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, hosted her viceregal colleagues all of them, the Governor General, Lieutenant Governors, and Territorial Commissioners here for what they called a Council at the Chapel Royal to learn about their roles in treaty. There, the Queen's representatives heard an address by Perry Bellegarde, then the AFN National Chief, who told them that, quote, properly understood, the treaty relationship is not founded in rights denial or a colonial mentality but rather in the equality and sovereignty of peoples and our agreement to share the land without dominating one another. Each of you must be aware of this history and the significance of treaty as part of your high office. While the government of the day has a role to operationalize the treaty obligations held by the Crown, the Queen's representatives are the caretakers and witnesses to this immutable relationship. Recently, Canada's first Indigenous Governor-General, Mary Simon, explained her viceregal role as existing to, quote, hold together the tension of the past with the promise of the future in a wise and thoughtful way. During his first audiences with the Governor-General, the Prime Minister and the Canadian High Commissioner, King Charles III committed to reconciliation and Crown Indigenous relationships. Indeed, when recalling his audience with the King, High Commissioner Ralph Goodale reported to CBC News that, quote, we had had an opportunity to talk about the importance of Indigenous reconciliation and how that has always been of interest for both the King and the Queen consort and how important it will be to continue to make good progress on that. The Crown has an important role to play. The question then becomes, at the beginning of this new reign, Granted, it is the 16th reign since the crown of Charles II was brought into the covenant chain. What role, if any, does the crown of Charles III have with Indigenous peoples? I am honoured today to be joined by two friends that between them have a lot of knowledge to share. Dr. Alan Corbier of Michigan First Nation on Manitoulin Island is a well-known historian and student of the history of Indigenous peoples and the Anishinaabe language. He also serves as an assistant professor at York University. 
He has a PhD from York, an MES from York, and a Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto. I first heard Alan at Rama First Nation in 2013 when he delivered a teaching about the wampum belts used at the Great Council of Niagara in 1764. I'm also joined by Rick Hill of the Tuscarora Nation, a member of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. He's a distinguished fellow, adjunct professor at Mohawk College. He taught at the University of Buffalo for 20 years and was the director of public programs at the National Museum of the American Indian. He was the founding coordinator of the Indigenous Knowledge Center at Six Nations Polytechnic, and he currently works at Mohawk College. I first heard Rick during the 2014 gathering to commemorate the Treaty of Niagara, which he organized with Alan. I'm very excited to have both of you here today. Thank you for coming out. And I thought that we would begin just with general thoughts. So I, uh, I wanted to invite you to share with me kind of your initial thoughts on the Crown, whatever they may be. And I thought we'd start with Rick. Thank you. And um, thinking about this uh, gathering, I was uh, wrestling in my mind of what do I actually believe about the Crown? Because all my adult life I heard we had a sacred relationship with the Crown. We have these many treaties that we made, got all these wampum belts that document those treaties. And yet, in my life, it's been hard to see those evidenced uh, by the government, uh, the federal government, or the provincial government, or even the municipal government. I'm happy to say there seems to be a, a turn, and we're certainly talking about it more. I think more and more people are seriously thinking about it. But it raised the question in my head is, well, what is the crown? Who is the crown? And how does the crown get transferred from way across the Atlantic Ocean to over here? And when we meet with government officials, who are we actually talking to? And what's the scope of their authority to make these decisions? The other part of it is, oftentimes Canada seems to have amnesia about its relationship to Native people. They'll say that our treaties, the Haudenosaunee, uh, predate uh, confederation, so therefore they have no obligation. And at the same time, they'll cite the Royal Proclamation of 1763 as the foundation of Canadian Indigenous law. And I'm saying, well, you can't pick and choose. You can't say this one thing suits you and all of the other things go away because the Royal Proclamation was made before Canada was a country. So I think we have to help people get back to understanding these are long-standing issues, legal issues, uh, cultural issues, uh, treaty issues. And uh, hopefully uh, tonight we'll kind of explore a little bit more about what that actually can mean to all of us. Thanks, Rick. Um, Al, what are your thoughts on on the Crown initially? Well, uh, <laughs> What we, I, I am compelled to speak the bit of Nishnabim one that I know. And it's uh, because it took me so long to learn. And the other thing that I say, uh, talk about sometimes is that you people, um, meaning the British, and settlers, when you came here, you actually had to learn our language and you had to interact with us on our terms. And when we look at these uh, wampum belts and other items, there we see shared meaning 
back then. And that these uh, different items conveyed that shared meaning. And then it was um, used as mnemonic devices on our behalf to remember uh, our relationship and what um, what we would call our relationship, but what uh, um, Sir William Johnson actually called our mutual engagements. Uh, in, in Ojibwe, we say, for us, we say, that actually means making mutual promises. And that's the word for uh, uh, treaty. The other word now that we that I've just recently discovered, and it's uh, it was written in a letter in Ojibwe, and then I saw that out west they kept this word, and it's uh, and a means mutually exchanging clothing, and that's what this Treaty of Niagara is actually why they called it that, because the the crown came here. And uh, when they came, they actually uh, entered into a relationship with us. And part of that relationship was that annually they would give us presents. And every year those consisted of multiple types of cloth. So myself, like what Rick had said, I'm not too sure um, who the crown is, especially here in North America. And uh, but I know that uh, that's who our ancestors entered into a relationship with, and that the people that continue continue to live in Canada actually are uh, living here by those agreements that their their ancestors and their former leaders made. So they're actually benefiting upon that um, that relationship. I believe as a as a settler that the Canadian that Canada has really, we've really stripped out ceremony from our day-to-day lives. Um, I teach Canadian civics uh, here in Ontario. Uh, the curriculum has changed uh, to, to start looking at treaty relationships. But um, oftentimes um, when we talk about treaty as settlers, they're talked about in their form as um, signed documents um, and things like that. We don't speak about the protocols. We don't speak about wampum and we don't speak about the crown. So when I hear you both say that you don't, you're not sure what the crown is, I think that is uniform. Um, I think indigenous folks have a better understanding of what the crown should be than non-indigenous folks. Um, and I, I wonder if the stripping of the ceremonial and the dismissing of something like the crown as this, it's just colonial and it's archaic and it needs to be gotten rid of, jettisoned, so to speak. That by doing that without having the necessary conversations about protocol and ceremony and the responsibilities that those protocols and ceremonies um, in, uh, are inhabited in those ceremonies, we are actually... Um, it, could be setting ourselves back. What are your thoughts on on that, uh, Rick? Well, I think you're right uh, that um, when I said that our, my elders said the treaties were sacred, I started looking at them and I said, I didn't see much sacred writing in these documents. Mm-hmm. But what they meant was there was a belief 
that the Creator, the Great Spirit, or God, brought our people's minds together in order to communicate earnestly with each other and to come to one mind. So there's a, a spiritual component to that. When we come to one mind, our minds become stronger and then uh, peace can prevail, which comes out of our, our concept of our great law. And the Haudenosaunee and I think Anishinaabeg people were very order-oriented, the procedure the, that we have to follow because it's time-tested and true. We've been doing this for a couple thousand years. So when the, the Dutch, the French, and the English arrived, they realized how significant this protocol was to us, this, this order. And also, they realized how significant wampum was to us. So they, they're very clear. You cannot have a treaty engagement with indigenous people unless you're carrying wampum and you speak earnestly and you follow their procedure. That's kind of what Alan was talking about earlier, that the language is encoded in the procedure. Uh, the metaphors are there. But one thing that is open just about all of our treaty engagements with the Crown was what we call this edge of the woods uh, ceremony, or the wiping of the tears. And basically it says that we don't know what happened to you since the last time we met, but you probably lost some people, lost some dear ones, and you're carrying that grief from that loss. In order for us to come to one mind to make peace, we have to wipe away those tears so you can clearly not only see us, but see the opportunity the new day provides. Then we have to clean out your hearing because uh, death has a habit of, it's like dust collecting there. It stops you from hearing us. So by cleaning that out, you'll hear the sincerity of our words. You'll hear the joyful song of birds or the children's laughter. Your spirit and your heart will be uplifted. And then we would also give them a drink of uh, water, which is a form of medicine, wash down that dust. We'd also clean off their clothes and wipe off their seats. But this ceremonial procedure, sometimes you'll see it in the treaty minutes. It just says, you know, we, we followed the, the usual custom or the customary opening. But the British in particular, they, they firmly believe this. They realize that you can't have a meeting unless you start with these principles. But I think what's happened since about 1830 is the Crown stopped performing those, those ceremonial beginnings, sharing those words, stopped wiping our tears, and we stopped wiping theirs. So I say to this very day, this is why the Canadian government can't see us for who we are. They can't hear us because something's blocking their hearing, and then they can't speak earnestly because something's blocking their, their throat. That very tradition that allowed us to build the covenant chain, allowed us to move forward on these matters has come to an end. It, it almost seems uh, the Crown has lost its institutional memory, I find, that the offices themselves, uh, the Crown was designed to have for settler society this memory of these protocols and these ceremonies, and that has been lost. And so Oftentimes, we'll have someone come into a high office or come in and be the king's representative or, or whatever, and there's this learning curve. There's there's no one there to kind of uh, inform them, this is your role and treaty is important. Um, what do you, uh, Al, any thoughts on that? Well, like what uh, Rick said, uh, this whole protocol and the, the language and the words that were, would be used, they, like what didn't what you didn't say at the beginning of this podcast is that you you actually gave us 
Rikinai tobacco. And then for Anishinaabe people, that's an important part of the process. So, I've been given this tobacco, and then I accepted it. The thing that uh, from 1764 to 1854 at the posts at the, like Niagara, Kingston, York, Detroit, Amherstburg, Michelin-Mackinac, Drummond Island, and uh, St. Joseph's Island and Manitowning, uh, where the council fire was, each time that the British came up to uh, renew this, uh, this relationship, they always gave us tobacco. And if you look on the lists of the gifts that were given, tobacco is on there. Uh, as well as the cloth. And now maybe some of your listeners will, will, will recognize that actually they've had to make tobacco ties for, for people, to, for elders to come into the, to the classroom or knowledge keepers to come into the classroom and stuff. That kind of is, a, is a, in a sense, a shorthand of, of uh, how for Anishinaabe people, you'd bring that tobacco and you'd bring a whole piece of cloth to, to an elder to ask them for, for some of that, to share some of that knowledge that they had. So the British from 1764 to 1854, when they'd come to the various posts to deliver those presents, to deliver that cloth, and remember it was printed calico, striped cotton, rateen, and all kinds of uh, cloth. But not only that, they actually gave us guns and they gave us ammunition, they gave us ball and shot and gunpowder. And they also gave us net threads, net and net thread, macro lines, cod lines, fish hooks. So when people look at this covenant chain wampum belt, they often say that um, this uh, belt represents nation to nation relationship. But I try to tell them that it just doesn't mean that since two men are standing there equally holding hands, that it just doesn't mean that. And people like uh, Rick talked about the Royal Proclamation of 1763. I've heard different people, scholars and lawyers, say that that 1763 is the uh, Magna Carta of Indian rights in Canada. And to me, the Magna Carta of that is actually that wampum belt, not not the actual proclamation. Right. And it's actually the, the, the delivery of those presents and the delivery of those implements and the delivery of that tobacco and the rations and food that they had at that time to actually uh, sit down around a council fire to deliberate, to talk on wampum, to smoke a pipe. And that's the thing, they, they smoked a pipe together. But I like what uh, Rick said is that uh, they stopped doing this. And, uh, and it was to our, um, uh, the relationship's detriment that it, that it did. And part of it is, again, like, they, like uh, of course, we're talking about reconcilia- reconciliation now, but uh, the, the actual processes of, of reconciling haven't actually been entered into from a uh, 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 Haudenosaunee or Anishinaabe perspective at this uh, particular juncture. So to us, that, that giving of that tobacco at the first place and then to have that fire is an important part and then to have that pipe is also a second important part, and then the then the belt and uh, and the wampum strings, and then the delivery of gifts and the deliberation uh, and the the words, and so there is a whole process as well, like what Rick's talking about, that hasn't been done in in years. But you know, it got me thinking too. There's actually two kinds of institutional memory. There's the stuff that we're talking about that really took place between our people. 
that is well documented in the treaty minutes, the, the parchment treaty and the wampum belts. But there's another kind of institutional memory. Uh, keep a stiff upper lip that the sun never sets on the British Empire or that the crown never lies. There's a kind of um, a parallel fantasy about uh, what it meant to be British or part of Great Britain that wants to deny the nitty-gritty parts of colonization. And so that often intrudes on our treaty relationship because uh, it's looked like we're, uh, you have to acknowledge a whole lot of bad things that took place. But if you really look at the nature of the covenant chain, it's meant to overcome those bad things. But if you don't acknowledge them, you can't get to that wiping of the tears and the clearing of the eyes and the throat. So in the past, many of the treaty councils were that. We're trying to make up uh, some of our people harmed uh, their people, some of their people harmed our people. We have to make amends for that. And I think what we learned from the residential school matter is we haven't made amends for the strife that's taken place uh, since the mid-1800s. And we keep looking then at treaties as solely the written document, and I think that's where, we, where the mistake is made. If you look at the treaty minutes, and some of these councils lasted several months. It's a whole lot of dialogue, a whole lot of agreements were in Maine. Some of those didn't make it to the paper. So when you get a Crown attorney today, you know, like pinpointing a word on a written document, say, well, this is what it says. We have to take a deep breath and say, well, let's look at how we understood what took place. Now let's realize it was this treaty council relationship. There was a repolishing the chain. There was making amends for the things that took place. Those gifts that Alan are talking about was an important sign of showing respect. When they stop showing respect, it's hard then to have a trusting relationship. So I think that's why the protocols are important. Now look at the, the British of all people, they're, 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 they're protocols especially. They love their protocols, yeah. yeah. And so they can be so meticulous about an event, a crown event. And what we're saying is they were that meticulous in treaty events and all we're asking them to do is to recover their meticulousness about polishing the chain. I find that Canada as a country, um, we're always taught it's a country that's looking forward and we don't do a good job, but we don't do a job of reflecting on our past. It's only, uh, it's only in reference to nation building that often our history is recounted, I think, to uh, settler Canadians. Um, and I, when you reference to the mid-1800s, because at that time, we're getting a tradition in this country of this idea of responsible government, which is now this kind of critical piece of how the Canadian democracy functions. And so oftentimes I will get told when I'm, when I'm thinking about this is that uh, the, the, the big issue with the Crown now is they must abide by responsible government, which means that they must follow the advice of their elected officials. Um, and this really starts coming in in the 1800s and then kind of uh, and then, of course, with Confederation. Um, this, of course, is done outside of treaty. This is done without consultation. And so people will say the crown's hands are are bound, are, are, are binded up and it, it can't do anything. Um, I'm not sure. I think it does have the power still. Uh, it has these unique powers in our society that really government doesn't have. I think of the power to convene and bring people together. It can do that still. 
uh, ceremony and protocol. Uh, we don't really have much of that in Canada except for the crown, even though I think it's been really whittled away and whittled down. I think that that can be kind of rediscovered. Um, and then this idea, the importance of the truth that the crown has attached to it. It's, it's, a, it's this old institution. And so that comes with this, uh, these actions that it has done either directly through some of the people that have actually worn the crowns or people who have done it in their name. And that there is a value to that in our society because it, it, it calls on us and, and the institution to kind of atone for that. It, it acts as this kind of remembrancer. Um, but it doesn't fulfill that function right now. Uh, is there a value to a function like that for settler society? Um, do you think going forward? I, I, I think a, a different way to what I, when I talk about this wampum, wampum belts and the treaty relationship, uh, I was, I knew this, but I didn't articulate it this way. And this lady named uh, Birgit Rasmussen, I read a book by her. Anyway, she was uh, talking about um, native documents or indigenous documents, and one of them being wampum. And uh, what she said, and this goes to what you're talking about, this institutional memory, basically. She says that uh, for indigenous people, the gifting of wampum is actually the beginning of a relationship, whereas a paper that is signed is the end of one, mm. that it's like a contract, that it's a done deal. That's, and that's, of course, the, the, uh, the old adage. It's a signed document, and now it's a done deal, and we don't have to revisit it. And so that's their, their whole orientation, is this, once it's signed, it's a done deal, we don't have any more responsibility to them. And you see later on on those, that's, uh, it's kind of one of the things I don't like is this, the, when they call it uh, peace and friendship treaties, and then they call the other ones uh, treaties when it's a, a session, and then the, that, with the sessions, then it's like, then the peace and friendship is kind of gone. And then there's no actual additional responsibility with the annuities. And then what, what ends up happening with those annuities, they're, they're allowed to, um, neglect them and, uh, and not increase them and stuff. So I just think when we're talking about, um, the relationship, and it's it's basically a, a way of how you approach your documents, I think, as well. Not only your documents, but and I'm talking about wampum as a document and the metals as a document and the pipes as a document in the sense of that you use it to to record what has happened and you use that pipe to, to and the markings on the pipe stem to actually say what, what actually was part of that. And of course, like uh, people out west, the, the Sioux people have these winter counts. So there's all these different ways of, of keeping keeping records that um, aren't uh, Western. And uh, the, the, the British, in and around this era, 1764, 1786, and the War of 1812, you see a melding of those two communicative uh, um, uh, systems. Mm. And because on a wampum belt, you'll then have numerals and letters. 
And of course, we uh, indigenous people, Haudenosaunee nor Anishinaabe, actually used those before then. And so when they're making this belt and they put the 1764 on there, it's actually to remind them that this is what they gave. And then subsequently, when Sir John Johnson repledged it in 1786, he put his initials on there, Sir, Sir J.J. Uh, Baronet and uh, 1786. So there's this blending of those materials because they, at that point, still, like what Rick was mentioning, they still respected our uh, our uh, power and our uh, also our, what we some would say, our sovereignty at that time as well. And I find, too, when we... When we have the conversation, and I'm, I'm speaking as a history teacher here, when we begin the Canadian story at something like Canada Day or Confederation, which often we'll see happen in the public discourse or in the classroom, that negates that history, the, the history of treaty that you're talking about, this negotiation and that, uh, that blending, uh, that time where there was actual interaction, community respect, you know, I... I think it, it, it just negates that in the minds of students and Canadians, and and it, it creates this kind of siloed approach to history, which benefits the status quo. You know, one time I um, took a job for Indian Affairs up in Ottawa, I guess a weak point in my life. But um, I ran the contemporary art collection for the, for the federal government. But in order to take the job, I had to sign this oath of allegiance to the queen. And I really wrestled with that, you know, because uh, because we consider ourselves uh, sovereign citizens of the Haudenosaunee. And so I went and talked to um, my supervisor and said, you know, I can't sign this as it is. And he asked me why. And I said, well, because we, we can't pledge to the queen if she's not going to pledge to us. And uh, he said, well, you have to sign something. So they allowed me at that time. I signed it, but I put a, a qualifier on it. Provided by making this pledge, it doesn't uh, violate my uh, Aboriginal or treaty rights. I don't think you can do that today, but to right. me that was important to say, why, why are we way over here pledging allegiance to the queen over there unless the crown does matter somehow? and that the government uh, does actions on behalf of the Crown. But the more I got into the uh, discussing and looking at our treaties, I realized that it's a very complicated mess. It's like somebody took a, a bowl of spaghetti and threw it on the floor. It's all mangled now with uh, misinformation, uh, disinformation, uh, historical interpretations, uh, very uh, legal opinions that often tear apart uh, indigenous uh, oral history. And when you try to unravel that, it gets very confusing. But when you go back to our, our relatives, our older relatives in the community, they're very clear on what the Wampum Belts mean. They're very clear as to this was the agreement that we made. Uh, and I was stymied by the fact there's such a gulf between what historians write, what textbooks say, and what old people knew in our community. But, you know, we didn't have those wampum belts when I was uh, young and looking. Mm. I heard about them. I saw some pictures of them. But all of those wampum belts have been taken away from our people back in the 1890s. So in 1970, the Onondaga Nation decided to start to recover them. They filed a lawsuit. And eventually led to other things. And I got involved uh, to help to recover them. 
And all of a sudden, with every wampum belt that came back, it was as if you're finding the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Here it is. Here's the evidence. Here's the belt that George Washington gave us. Here's the, here's the belt that the Dutch made. Here's the agreement we made on this over here. And I was fortunate that in the 70s, there were hundreds of old people you could go and talk to. So if I had a question, you know, we drive up to Akwesasne, we go to Onondaga, we go to Kanawagi, we go to Allegheny, talk to these people about this. So I'm fortunate but also plagued by that because uh, what I'm stuck with is what happens when you write down an oral history and trying to document and make our case and then go in front of the lawyers who pick it apart where that living memory that the old people had and they shared with me, they attached that living memory to, to my mind. So whenever I look at something, their, their voice is always kind of in the background. But I've also learned you've got to be kind of like a detective and separate fact from fiction. Just because it's written doesn't mean it's true. Just because some old people said it doesn't mean it's true too. You've got to really examine that. But it's so complicated. I find that this is what stopped me from writing a book about treaties because it is so, it's so difficult to balance uh, the written word versus the oral text and then knowing the consequence of what's happened to us because of treaty failure. A good friend of mine who passed away, uh, Bob Antone, he questioned, why are we making such a big deal about these treaties? He says, they were made with thieves. So why do we want to honor them today? Why do we have treaty week in our schools when the government doesn't live up to these treaties? In fact, they don't even understand the nature of them. And so ever since then, it's got me thinking, like, maybe we've deluded ourselves into thinking there is a crown that cares, that there, there was a sacred intent to these agreements. But when you look at the realities of our life, all the land lost, all the lives lost in, in hope that someday these treaties are going to be valid, I, I shake my head sometimes and say, maybe we're a big fool for believing that they're true. Mm-hmm. But what I heard from those old people, that being it's about this sacred relationship, I can't give up on them. I just got to keep trying because maybe it is true what they said, that one day the power that affects their mind and their heart, the power that affects our mind and our heart, the power that affects the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee mind and heart, is going to come back together and that we're going to feel this, I don't know what you want to call it, spiritual energy of the truth of treaties. Mm-hmm. And so that's my hope. Uh, but this is a late stage of my life. I keep saying, I wish it could happen pretty soon. <laughs> I'm getting tired of waiting. That sounds like the conclusion of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Note the end on. Uh, on my, my end, um, I'm younger than Rick and I always cherish the time to sit down and talk or co-present with him. I always learn something. The the one thing that he talked about was that he was able to go and visit his old people. And uh, it's kind of the same with me, but I didn't quite have hundreds. Um, And I used a lot of writing. And when I recite that wampum belt, the Great Covenant chain, it was based on that rubbing that was done when uh, Jean-Baptiste Siganoc was the keeper of that uh, covenant chain belt. And he was, uh, at that time, just leaving uh, Coldwater area. And this was a model Indian reserve at that time. Anyway, they did this rubbing. They counted each number, uh, each beads, each row, 
and the number of beads in each row of that belt. So we know the exact number of beads on each of those belts. Um, and so I, I, I had my friend make these belts that were in that article. And, um, and it was four belts that were entrusted to the Odawa at that time. It was the 1764 covenant chain, then it was the 1786 repledge, and then it was one Robert, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell at Meshel Mackinac at the ending of the War of 1812. And then it was the 24 Nations uh, eternal, uh, eternal, promises, uh, eternal Presence Promise Belt. Anyway, I've benefited a lot from writing. And so when I brought these out and we I had my friend make these belts, I went around talking in my community. And uh, they all said to me, what are you doing? This is, that's a Mohawk thing. We don't, Nishnabe don't use wampum belts. And I was like, it's right here. And this was like uh, in 2000, the year 2000. And uh, so I went around, I kept talking about it. And it took a while that uh, people now, now nobody says, what are you doing? That's a Mohawk thing. They know that we use, we use wampum as well. And wampum actually extended out, uh, the, its use extended out to at least the Mississippi from the eastern seaboard. Anyway, I was so happy with this belt and, uh, and the, the belts. And this one old man that I used to go, what we say, uh, be a helper to, I showed him to him. And I said, did you ever see anything about this uh, and hear anything about this? Because this fellow was very learned, uh, this old man. And uh, he, he kind of put his hand towards it. And he says, maybe this is why we have such a hard time, because we took this. And it's kind of back to what uh, Rick was saying, that what Bob had told him, we're, we're, we're really holding this up, this treaty relationship. But that old man basically was saying, this may be why we took this and accepted it. Maybe that's why we're having such a hard time now. And that just kind of, I, I, I remember feeling like it kind of, I felt like I took a step back and I was like, what? This, isn't this our kind of, um, this is our Magna Carta? This is where, you know. But um, that's always struck me. Uh, so the amount of writing that I've learned from on the opposite end, like what Rick was talking about, all the um, old people's uh, wisdom that was shared with him. And it just took one old man saying that to me. Yeah. And then that really kind of really got me, has had me thinking about it ever since. I've got no resolution to it, but I I just always think of that. And I tell people that when I go visit Nishnabek and I say, that's what this old man said, that maybe that's why we're having such a hard time was we took that. I wonder if... And maybe this is just me being um, optimistic or hopeful, which it can always be a dangerous thing, that if we weren't ready when those treaties were entered, we weren't speaking truthfully then, that the generation now is ready to honor what was said. That while the generation, when those treaties were entered into, and I'm speaking settlers here, um, entered into them disingenuously, that the new generation of uh, students that we're raising with this education and with these teachings will be able to meet the responsibilities that their ancestors pledged them to. Maybe there's a possibility in that. Um, 
I uh, told this story before we started taping, and I'll tell it again. Um, I heard from a uh, lieutenant governor's office that they were advised once that a lieutenant governor was not to be in the same room as wampum, as if they would just uh, suddenly um, burst into flame or something like that. But what we are seeing in the country, um, particularly with the lieutenant governors, the provincial representatives of the crown who live in a kind of strange constitutional space regarding treaty, because treaty, as far as the Canadian state is concerned, is with the federal crown. Um, we're seeing our provincial lieutenant governors really engaging with um, Indigenous treaty partners, forming meaningful relationships, entering into ceremony and protocol. Um, just recently last year, they uh, right across the country, all the provincial representatives planted these gardens with treaty partners, sourcing medicine with treaty partners as kind of an ongoing project to of, of, of education. Do these offices have a role to play in the 21st century um, as the as, as our settler society comes to terms with with treaty and their responsibilities in treaty? Well, certainly, as long as the grass turns green and the sun rises in the east and sits in the west, as long as uh, water flows downhill, the crown has a pivotal role, whether it's at the provincial and the federal or international level to manifest the real meaning of the agreements that they made. This is true about all treaties at the Crown. But history is funny in that sometimes what people agree to at one point becomes either a legacy or, um, I don't want to say it, a stumbling block for the future. So maybe the real issue here is, can we find a way to to make new treaties between the indigenous nations and the government of Canada. We, we can't predicate the whole thing of what happened in 1764. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of living since then, and our, our societies have changed quite a bit. The circumstances are very different. And as we face the impact of uh, global climate change, it does us no good to talk about who's got a treaty right to catch a polluted fish. And that the very... The very survival of humanity is at risk. So, um, so maybe there's a there's a need. Now, I believe what you said is true, though. Is that uh, I'm going to call them the new Canadians that have come into the light of understanding. Even before the Truth and Reconciliation, we we started this dialogue. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've uh, lectured uh, uh, for or taught uh, with. It's certainly growing, and I find there's a great impatience among young Canadians for their the inaction of their government, but they feel powerless to make that change. Mm. So one thing I've been advocating is maybe not so much maybe it's not so much the formal treaty, but how do the people of the ship, their descendants, and the people of the canoe and our descendants, how are we going to get along in the future? And I believe it, as all cases, a treaty is only good as the people uh, make it happen. And so if people start building constructive relationships with indigenous people and find a way to be helpful, that we can recover that sense of uh, peace and friendship that was one of the founding principles. But if we wait for the governments to grant us the right to be a nation or to grant us a sovereignty, say you're, you're missing the whole... You're missing the whole point. 
So I believe that some of the new agreements that the Canadian government is calling treaties aren't that at all. It's mm-hmm. just a wolf in sheep's clothing. They just put out some bait and some people bite into it. And it's just another way to push Canadian law further over the Indigenous uh, governance. So that's where the old treaties are important, is it establishes the, the nature of that relationship. But it's up to every generation to make that relationship come true. And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope that young Canadians will do something uh, to take the moral high ground and make sure that their relationship with Indigenous people is certainly uh, less harmful than it was uh, what, their, what their relatives did. The uh, for the Anishinaabe, they have a, a prophecy, and some call it the seventh fire or the eighth fire, and that the the people would be getting together, uh, and that there would be a new people, and sometimes people take it to be a literally um, uh, meaning a blending of all nations, uh, but I think sometimes it also would just be a more enlightened. Uh, people that uh, that care not just for uh, each other, but like what Rick's talking about, for the earth and uh, and our place within it and all, of course, all of the animals and fish and birds and plant life and and, and uh, all the spirits, the ancestors there. Um, part of it too, I, I, so that's when you mentioned this hopefulness or this optimism, uh, part of me is, uh, I'm usually a, a pessimistic guy. And then like what Rick said, you basically you're, um, I'm, I'm compelled though to keep trying, uh, just because of what was shared, what was shared with me by, by some of the, some of the elders. The other thing though, that, uh, that I, I think about, and, uh, Rick also alluded to this when he started in the seventies, I started like in the, in the nineties. It's that each generation then picks up and brings forth a bit more. So like he mentioned, he never, when he grew up, he didn't see the belts. Now they got quite a bit of belts. They don't have them all, but they got a good amount of belts. And the same thing, like what I mentioned when, when I started out in 2000 reading these belts, nobody believed me that Anishinaabe people had belts. And now they don't question that. And then the same thing when, with my kids, they would have never heard about this uh, these belts and the, these old treaties and these old relationships. When I went to school, we never covered treaties, and now uh, now that's in the in the curriculum. Even though it's uh, it's not fully where we want it, and it's like like you said, it's a treaty week rather than interspersed throughout. Right. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's been if we just look at our own lifetimes and our own education in the dominant system in the provincial education system, uh, then you see that there's been some movement. But our, our we have to look at our yardsticks in a, in, a, in a different sense as well. My last question for you both: um, in the space that we're in here, this uh, chapel, it was created in 2017. And I, I find the date significant because that was, of course, in the midst of these Canada 150 celebrations or commemorations for the 150th anniversary of Confederation. And I found it significant that this chapel was created because uh, by the Queen during that year, um, at her behest, um, as her um, as a step of something personal from her, because 
all amongst while the country is talking about confederation, this place, while small, is a, a, a monument to a relationship that predates that confederation. Um, there's no, not yet, uh, a plaque or marker at, um, at Niagara to tell people about the gathering that was there, the council. There's nothing at, at Fort Niagara mm-hmm. that, that tells of that. But there is this place, um, if it's used properly, right? Um, so that was, that was kind of her action in the, in, in the end of her reign. And well, now we're in a, into a new reign. And uh, we're, there's going to be this big ceremony on May 6th with the coronation. And then presumably either just before that or just after that, we'll have a visit by, by the new king. Um, if you could say something to the king, if you could give him a teaching or give him, um, give him some advice, you could speak to him right now, what would you say to him? <laughs> Alice smiling. <laughs> uh, what, what could he do that would be uh, meaningful uh, that would bring us forward um, as a society, if there is anything at all. Well, what I thought about is first I would uh, congratulate him on his long tenure and getting ready for this mm-hmm. position that he's about to assume. He's well aware of uh, indigenous matters in Canada. He's been here several times, and and so I think that's helped prepare him. So in other words, it's been part of his mind, and hopefully it carries that forward. It's the whole question of what happens. The crown sometimes seems to get amnesia. Once you actually put the crown on somebody's head, they don't remember anything. (laughs) Right. But second is that I guess I would acknowledge to him personally the powerful words that he shared the last time he was here in Canada. I thought he said some extraordinary things, some very insightful things about what took place the residential schools and what's happened to Indigenous people. And he seemed to have a genuine feeling, finally, about it. It's not just a speech, if you know what I mean, but there was this feeling. And tying it back to what we talked about, our shared responsibility to the earth. So I don't think I could have written some of his statements better than, than what he said. So I would congratulate him on that. But then I would say two things I would ask of him. As the head of church, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, he has to step forward just like the Pope did and not just apologize for what the Anglicans did uh, to the indigenous people, but to open up the Anglican records so that we, for once and for all, we can put these old matters to rest that have been, mm-hmm. been, heading, uh, been causing trouble with our people. And in the spirit of the treaty, we realize in order to have a good relationship, both sides have to be healthy. So help us recover our health by telling us what the, the truth is. And then the last thing I would ask him is how about convening a uh, covenant chain commission? Because we don't have all the answers now. Mm-hmm. But we can begin to explore those answers in, in a serious dialogue with each other. What does it mean to have a covenant chain relationship with each other? What, what do these old treaties mean? But by having this commission, it kind of elevates the discussion. Rather than having crown lawyers argue it out in court, or the attorney generals just trying to deny our, our treaty uh, interpretation, let's sit down together and talk about it. And I think his mother began this process. In 2010, she was here. She made these silver bells that she gave to the royal chapel at 
on, on Bradford, and the Royal Chapel in Tynanagan. On the bells that she gave to Mohawk Chapel, it says 1710 to 2010, the Silver Covenant Chain. She was referencing the time uh, for uh, what they call the Four Indian Kings went to meet with Queen Anne, and then I think her as a female sovereign. But it's right during our whole land matters going on here. And she said these, she gave these because of the long-standing treaty relationship between the Crown and the Six Nations. So there's something to that. She couldn't tell Canada what to do. She couldn't even tell her own government what to do, but she was signaling to people, this is an important matter to resolve because look at the problems it's causing. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to that. So I, I think the, the new king can pick up on what his mother started, but also what he himself has fueled in his dialogue with indigenous people here in Canada. And it's important that it's he that calls this convening rather than, say, the government of the day or uh, something like that? Yeah, because I think we want to elevate it to say it would help for us to finally see who the crown is. Uh, it's this man over there who has this physical crown but has inherited the moral responsibility for Great Britain to have an honorable relationship with its treaty partners. And that, that's got to get beyond, you know, the personal politics and the economics of the time and this whole uh, amnesia about the responsibility. And there's no guarantee what it would lead to, but unless we engage with that kind of serious discussion, and I also believe he's got to involve with the traditional leaders, the people who inherited these treaties. They're the ones who understand their nature. They're the ones who end up holding these wampum belts. Um, because sometimes the elected governments, as instrumentalities of the crown, are caught in the middle. So much they can do and can't do. So anyway, all of that could come out of something like this uh, Covenant Chain Commission. Okay. Thank you. Those are, of course, those are excellent um recommendations and I, I never thought of uh, having like a commission uh, I, I read your question um, beforehand and one of the things that I had found is that we our ancestors uh, we, what they they had written down in Ojibwe they said uh, that Sir William Johnson had said Nashke ni so he says that in there, they, they, our ancestors wrote in 1862, they wrote this in Ojibwe, and they said that, your, that Sir William Johnson had said, look, my children, he said, as he pointed to the sun, the great spirit hears what I am saying to you. And the, the other thing that uh, we have to bear in mind, and Rick alluded to this, that the, the moral right of the, of the crown, and of course that he also mentioned that he's the head of the church. But when you look at all those old peace medals, it, it says on there, God on my right. And so, in, in Latin, of course, uh, but it's, it's this whole thing about the, the medal, being round, and one, one fellow, his name was George Gabelse, and he was the chief at Garden River back in the day, and he said that when 
his ancestors had gone to Niagara, an envoy had given them a medal. And he says, as long as you keep this medal, you will see that it has no beginning and no end. And that is the good, that represents how good my promise will be, how long it'll be. So it's supposed to be, of course, uh, uh, being eternity instead of being a zero. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the other thing that I, that I like, the, the chiefs ended up having a grand council at Garden River in uh, 1879 on the North Shore, and they had the wampum belt in front of them. And they formulated their response because they actually want, they, they addressed this to the Governor General of the Dominion of Canada, Lord Lorne at that time. And then they, they had specific grievances, but they also wanted to have the presence reinstituted. But they knew what it meant to, to them. And they actually wanted to then go on to England to explain this to, to the Crown. So here's their words at that time. They were told by their great father, then the king of England, through his officers, that the said king would not always live to look after them and their rights, that after his decease, efforts might be made by evil-disposed persons to deprive them of their presence, and if they were ever so unfortunate as to lose them, all they would have to do would be to present the treaty and the medal which I give them to my successor in the throne of England, and both the covenant and the promise would be speedily and faithfully carried out and the presence restored to them. So this to me is the importance why, when, uh, like you mentioned that uh, Rick and I were involved in the um, uh, 2014 um, commemoration of the, I don't know the proper word, but we had a gathering at Niagara mm -hmm. about the 1764. 250th anniversary and one of the things that I was trying to do was to see if people still had that medal that of 1764 that was given out and then to actually the importance is the medal is also a document and then when you couple that document with that wampum belt if we had the original and then what the our ancestors and our former chiefs believed is that actually presenting these to the successor in the throne that the covenant and the presence would actually be restored. The covenant and the presence, the important thing there, of course, is that uh, they're talking about giving that cloth, giving that tobacco, giving that ammunition, giving the net thread, giving all these gifts and presents to us. So I guess I'm uh, also curious what they have in their collections. I don't, I've never been able to get to uh, if they have, if the, if uh, Buckingham Palace or or wherever else, if they actually have a a room where they've been given, where all these different pipes and and belts and other gifts that were given to them by Indigenous people were wherever those are. But one time I was um, I was um, reading a book, and this is actually a Mohegan fella, and I don't know how to say his name. Oheko, the Mohegan Sachem Oheko. Uh, and it was, the petition was dated July 14, 1703. So in the petition, the Mohegans state that the spirit had gifted them with a pipe bowl that holds two stems. They also stated that they were given the, by the monarch Charles II a sword and a Bible for protection. The details in this petition are suggestively similar, uh, 
um, and I was writing about uh, this prophecy, meaning the uh, the coming of the non-native people. So again, uh, just if you'll uh, bear with me here, the 14th of July, 1703, the Mohegan Indians of New England. I am informed you are bound for old England. Let me request you to make me and my condition known to the great Queen Anne and to her noble council. First of our hereditary right to ye soil and royalties of our dominion and territories before the English came into ye country, insomuch that all due loyalty and obedience by our people is not conferred on us by the English, but by ye gods, who gave us a token as an earnest and pledge of our happy reign here, and also as our old seers construed, a more ample reign in ye other region. Wherefore the gods had sent to that royal family one of their tobacco pipes, which strange wonderment was taken upon the beach of sea, at Seabrook or thereabouts, it being like ivory with two stems to the bowl in ye middle. This strange pipe, not made by man, is kept choicer than gold from generation to generation. It animates all the royal society with full persuasion that ye said token is sufficient evidence that they shall sit amongst ye gods in the long hunting house and there smoke tobacco as the highest point of honor and dignity and where there will be great feasting of fat bear, deer, moose, all joy and mirth to welcome their entertainment and see. Also in ye reign of King Charles II of blessed memory, his majesty sent us a token, viz a Bible and a sword, which presents we thankfully accepted and keep them in ye treasury as choice as we do ye aforesaid God's pipe, hoping it may be a safeguard and a shield to defend us, and we in the process of time may reap great benefit thereby and attain to ye knowledge of the true and living God, but of late I may with great discouragements. I'm just really curious whatever happened to this pipe bowl that had two uh, ports for where the stem would be. I've seen different pipe bowls like uh, like that, uh, but out for the Sioux people. And then, of course, this sword and Bible that was given by Charles II. Of course, this is King Charles III. So if we tie, try to tie this hereditary chieftainship and hereditary kingship, Together, and that's why uh, it, it kind of makes sense to me in a sense about this, hered this sense of hereditary uh, succession, and that uh, if we are able to remind him, and that's what our ancestors, our chiefs who were, who were hereditary chiefs, that they said that all we had to do was to bring that medal and the, and the treaty, meaning the wampum belt, to the successor, the heir of the throne, and then all these, the covenant and the presence would be restored. And likewise, this Mohegan fella is also talking about uh, using these uh, these pipes and these swords and Bibles as uh, as a gifts of exchange to show this alliance, but also to give this alliance uh, meaning. And uh, I wonder now, I guess, what uh, what King Charles III would would say of what his what his ancestors had uh, had given the people at that time as a as a pledge, as a covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Before we close, uh, are there any any final thoughts or any anything that you that that we've kind of left out of the conversation or a question that wasn't asked that you wish was asked? 
Well, Alan raises a good point about the, um, the continuance of the tradition. And because of the English are very firm on this, we have one thing that uh, we shared. I think it was in uh, 1876 when the Haudenosaunee uh, took a lacrosse team to uh, England and played the game in front of uh, uh, Queen Victoria. And she gave it her blessing. She liked it. And then it spread throughout the Commonwealth. So wouldn't it be great if in 2028, when lacrosse is expected to be reintroduced into the Olympics in Los Angeles, that the king and the teams from England and Scotland and Wales, Canada, Australia, could take the field along with the Haudenosaunee Mm. to play this game. Now, in the old days, the game was used to settle war, settle conflicts. So how about this? We'll play for the Haldeman track. <laughs> Winner take all. <laughs> the one thing that I didn't finish was um, talking about that uh, in our language. We, we, the word for the treaty is based upon Windamage, and that just means I'm given a report. But when you say Wa Windamage, the, the linguists call this reduplication of the first part of the uh, word. Wa Windamage actually then means you give a report over and over again. But this came to mean making a promise, because when you make a promise, you say it over and over again, and that it has this idea of uh, being continuously activated. And in our language, Windemalge just means you give a report. But when you give a report to somebody, you say, Windemawa, I give him a report. But if you give them a promise, you say, Windemawa. But when you do give a report or um, you give a, a promise to each other, then you insert this reflexive part in the word, and that means they're, they're promising each other. And the same, so when you have that D in the, the middle there, that means mutual promises to each other. So when I talked about that, uh, that's the where you're giving each other clothing. But if you just give it one way, in ah, I gave him clothing, or in ik, he gave me clothing. Then, but if you say in they're giving each other clothing, and gwe'edim, clothing was exchanged, and that's another word for for treaty. And it's specifically to me uh, how I understand it now is that it's in reference to that, uh, of course, that uh, treaty of um, Niagara, where they pledged these uh, to annually give us these presents. And it's and it's it's an inclusive act, yeah. yeah. Right? It's not a siloed act. Yeah. It's not I gave the clothing. Yeah. yeah. But I think it also signals this: the treaties aren't just one-sided, or what mm-hmm. they are going to yeah. give us. Yeah. We have an obligation to provide back, to teach them how to survive in this land. You know how to plant corn, or how to I tell you the truth, how to confederate, how, how to give peoples a voice. So, in many ways. What the Crown saw in Indigenous Confederacy was democracy in action. Right. Where the people were represented by their leaders, and the leaders met in a council. And so I think there was a great inspiration that transferred from their meeting, their treaty relationship with us, that probably led uh, to the American Revolution, that the American colonists wanted what we had, but they still are descendants from the Crown. So what did they do? Even though they, they severed their ties with the crown, they picked up the covenant chain and made a relationship with the Haudenosaunee. And so that continues on to this very day, too. So I think we're at that critical point where uh, Great Britain uh, 
needs to decide uh, not so much what the treaties meant, but what would they like to see them mean in the future? And let's begin to negotiate the nature of that relationship, just like our ancestors did a um, thousand times in our history. And I'll say as a, as a teacher, students, when they are taught about this and are taught in this way, it makes complete sense. They, they get that. They, they, they understand that. And I think that's where my, my hope is, is coming from because I see it in their understanding that when these concepts, when they, when they hear you speak either directly or on video or audio or wherever, um, you see the light bulb go on and you see them begin to look at the world around them in a different way, in a better way, uh, particularly in terms of their relationship with land, which I don't think settler people we are good at, relationship with land, because we come from away. Um, when, when, it is, when, they, when we learn about treaty, that relationship gets closer and stronger because of the responsibilities and the relationships that are kind of threaded in there. Um, it's not well. It's not well known. But the last act that, um, as Prince of Wales, the king did when he was here, he was here uh, last. Or sorry, earlier this year in in Yellowknife, and I spoke earlier about these gardens that were planted. Well, one of these gardens was planted in Yellowknife, um, and so the king went and visited. And his last act in the country before he left was he went and dedicated this this garden, and. Uh, it, it was a little humorous because um, it was still freezing at night. So after he dedicated it, they had to dig it up and move it inside so that it wouldn't freeze, and then they brought it back out. Um, the commissioner of, uh, of the Northwest Territories is the wonderful uh, Margaret Tom. And um, before visiting the garden, uh, Margaret uh, from the Dene Nation, uh, sur survivor of residential school many times over, um, had these moments where she exchanged teachings and lessons with the king and privately. Um, one of them was that uh, one of the medicines planted in that garden was tobacco from this that was grown on behalf of this space here in the in the Chapel Royal, and um, and so he went and he he dedicated this space in the in the whirlwind of the cameras and everything like that. But he had this quiet moment with her. Um, uh, where these teachings were kind of uh, uh, were, were gifted to him, um, the big one that she that she did give to him was uh, that the color of all the plants that she chose for it were orange to represent the children uh, lost at residential school, um, and so that was his last teaching before he left this country and went away and became king, and so he'll be coming back and. Um, uh, and so that too gives me hope because the last words that were spoken to him were uh, in light of treaty and that relationship. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that we're leaving with some hope um, for what this relationship can look like in the 21st, in the 21st century. Um, I really want to thank you uh, both for for taking the time. Um, Al drove here from Manitouan Island and uh, just got out of the car and, and, and came here and, and, and Rick came from his home as well. So I, I really appreciate it. So Miigwech and, and Yahweh, uh, thank you for, uh, for coming. 
And I look forward to uh, continuing these, these conversations, these really important conversations uh, in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. We will sit patiently waiting for the king to show up and have a cup of tea. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's say that after the coronation and the, and the visit of the king to the country, we can kind of reconvene this council and, uh, and have a discussion about that and, uh, and kind of share some thoughts around that, around the actions, uh, if any actions are taken, um, and what that visit looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, okay. sounds good. You've been listening to the second part of our inaugural episode of The Crowning Canada, Rooted in Treaty, a conversation at the Chapel Royal. Our host and guide on this important journey, exploring the role of the Crown in Canadian society, is Nathan Tidridge. Nathan was joined by Dr. Alan Corbier and Rick Hill in a conversation in the historic Chapel Royal at Massey College in Toronto. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find us at crowningcanadapodcast.ca to read our helpful show notes, leave a comment, or listen to extended material. Crowning Canada is produced in association with our friends, the talented and devoted staff at the Ontario Historical Society, Heather Anderson, Sarah McCabe, and their redoubtable executive director, Robert Leverty. We acknowledge that this pilot episode has been the beneficiary of support from the Government of Canada, Canadian Heritage. A special thanks to our production family whose efforts on our behalf keep us humble. Jeff Bowes, director and producer. Barry Penhale, our producer emeritus. And to Helen Jones and Christine Vanderwall. Our score is composed and generously provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. All of our graphic arts are created by the skill of Ron Barnett of South Grey News. Nathan writes, hosts, and produces this work and the show's senior producer is Tim Riley at Leaking Ambiance Studio. I'm your announcer, Annie Bose. We'd love to have you back here for the next episode in the series, Ceremony. We will announce its date in mid-January. And now, on behalf of all of us at The Crown in Canada, we wish you a happy, peaceful, and prosperous new year for 2023. Crown in Canada is copyright under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license.